Welcome back everyone to R2Cast number 163, last episode we had, which I just filmed about 20 minutes ago, it was really good, but someone who spent two years working in Burma, you may know Burma or you may know it as Myanmar, Hattie's worked out there as a climate climate scientist, moved back to the UK about three days before lockdown, which coincided with two weeks before another military coup in Burma. Now you speak to probably the generation before Ed and myself, they probably look at Burma in quite a negative, not negative, you know, for the people there, but not a, a nice place to live from, from the sort of turmoil that ensued there. And unfortunately, they've sort of been sort of thrown back into that. Nati was just weeks away from kind of being stuck there. So uh, yeah, really interesting story from that perspective, moving on to her uh, Nuffield scholarship in carbon sequestration uh, so yeah really good episode there um i then said <laughs> the next episode would be amy stoner that was wrong this is the next episode which we'll get into in a wee second but the next episode again it's going to be amy stoner amy i promise it's going to happen it sounds like we're just delaying you and delaying you um but her nuffield scholarship is going to be in food security so a good episode there for those of you that enjoy the all-in series and maybe are not too fussed on the food and farming side the last one we had was with chris jenks chris jenks is photo when we released the social media is actually him giving Daniel Radcliffe of all people the abdominal thrust so quite a quite a cool story in itself yeah. that um yeah <laughs> pretty mad yeah I mean our guests a bit like geez, who are these people and why do they interview people like that and how, you know um but today's guest I've been excited for for the best part of six weeks now um going back to mid-October uh I found myself on I believe the 9th um, pickups for peace convoy taking pickups and other um, you know other stuff that can help whether that's medicine whether that's ropes whether that's whatever generators and so on and so forth to Ukraine and what an experience it was um, whether that was the sort of harrowing realization that I found myself in a, a completely safe city to then go around the corner and see what is almost impromptu graves of those people that have died from that city in the east of the country um, and just realise that the sort of the all we albeit we see it on the news, just how serious what is happening in Ukraine and 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 as they say, the aggressor out there, they very rarely give them the credit of giving the country's name, um, what they're doing to that country for for the sake of sheer greed and pr- probably one man and maybe very few others is greed in, in general, um, but that experience for me was extremely positive in a lot of senses, extremely negative in a lot, uh, but one that. I really enjoyed was the fact for <clears throat> to get that pick up there I spent the best part of 1500 miles with one man um, and Bill and I spoke about all things whether that was his job in air traffic control whether it was what we thought Ukraine really meant whether it, around that time was when um, what's happening now with Gaza was was kicking off we spoke about that and just a, a really nice chat over the course of four days uh, we also had a nice date where we had a nice Polish soup in a random basement in Krakow, and we spent a lot of time together. And with that time, no, Bill, Bill's wife, if you're listening here, I'm so sorry. Uh, but no, it was um, it was a really positive experience. I really enjoyed that drive. I really got to know Bill, and we got chatting about my podcast, and it turned out that uh, Bill's, Bill's son had actually heard of it, and he'd watched it, um, which was quite cool. And then halfway into Germany, he goes, do you know I think my sister would be great for the podcast. And I thought, brilliant. I'll be honest, you hear this quite often when people realise you've got a <laughs> podcast. Like, oh, you know, my cousin's aunt's hedgehog's got a really cool story. Um, and you kind of have to be polite about these things. But suddenly I googled uh, Bill's sister and I thought, yes, I think I texted you pretty much straight away. Yeah. I was like, we have to do this. Yeah. Um, and that guest today is 
I'm not going to call you Bill Rawls' sister, that would be unfair. Our guest today is Kate Rawls. Kate, would you like to say hello? Hey, what an amazing introduction. Thank you. You, you oh, well, get some yeah. kind of medal of honour in my book for spending that much time with my brother. <laughs> <laughs> no, great guy, really interesting. Sorry, brother. Love you really. <laughs> yeah, I know, that's it, that's it. Bill Rawls. Um, no, I, I, I honestly, I mean, absolutely do not require a medal of honour. He was just a great guy, great crack. And it was, it was good fun, actually. I mean, you were ploughed into, you got to Ukraine and you had to fly through Lviv and, and an, an armoured convoy and stuff. And, and that, that in itself was an experience. But um, yeah, no, it was, it was a, yeah, just a nice experience of the drive with him, to be honest. I don't know if you've said it on a podcast yet, but how did you get, how did that come about? The yeah, it's probably a, probably a good thing to quickly caveat into, in fairness. I mean, I used to be really good at knowing what podcast episode was what number and stuff, but we started this year in number 73, and this is number 163, so it's kind of hard at this point. Yeah. But at some point, we filmed with Pickups for Peace with Vince Gillingham, along with Mark Laird and um, Keith Dawson. Founded Pickups for Peace back in March, and uh, I'd heard about it on the Highland Show. They were bringing out, um, you know, as much as they could to Ukraine. Those three have a business, a pretty notable farming business in Ukraine. Hopefully, hopefully, we'll bring Keith on at some point. And uh, I said to Vince, who was quite clearly um, notably well off. I mean, like not just a few grand. Like he'd right. sold a pretty notable business. And I said on air, I was like, Vince, I can't help financially. Is there any way I can help? And he was like, Do you want me a driver? And I was like. Oh, yes. <laughs> now, in that period of August to November that I said was mad busy, the only week off I had was the six days that that mission was happening. I was like, oh, no way, man. This is perfect. So that's how I ended up. And uh, yeah, what experience it was. And I mean, this, this episode is not about pickups for peace, but if anyone's listening um, and they want to do their bit and genuinely feel part of something changing, like I, literally, Keith Dawson's words were, they just took out their 250th pickup. And the way he sees that is that's 250 dinner tables that will have an extra person at the dinner table this Christmas. Jesus. And Christ. when he said that, like it, it hit me. And I was like, geez, that's impressive. This is amazing. And then you met people that were fighting and you met people and you walked through over four figures worth of graves that weren't there nine months ago. Um, you know, like it just sickening numbers. One person was my exact birthday, day, month, year. Just a horrible experience. So if you feel like you can be part of that, it is a completely safe experience. I've, I've genuinely felt less safe in Glasgow, and I'm not exaggerating it. Completely safe in Lviv. Um, but yeah, an interesting one, and good to understand what's happening in the world. We live a, we like to think our politics and whatnot is bad here, but it's really not. <laughs> yes, there's issues, of course there is, but I think we, we've got a bit of a distorted view in reality, to be honest. But um, yeah, I would strongly advise anyone that wants to try it. Uh, but... Yeah, moving on to today's guest. Kate, could you give us, I'm going to say background, but I've, give us a wee bit of a, a run through of your life. So I've got a feeling this is going to be a, yeah, a, a pretty cool episode. Give us a wee bit of background to Kate. Heck, that's a big question to start with, isn't it? Um, <laughs> well, I grew up all over the place, but mostly in Scotland. We moved around a lot. We went Aberdeen, Penzance, Aberdeen at one point. So I spent a lot of my childhood on school buses, not having a clue what the other kids were saying. Between Aberdeen and Penzance is quite profound. Um, and we always lived rurally. So I spent a lot of my childhood hanging out on farms, actually. And I, I was always drawn to farms and animals and um, just being outside. So that was definitely a big part of it. 
And then I ended up going to university at Aberdeen and um, wanted to be a vet. That didn't work out, mainly because I was rubbish at physics and chemistry, which is <laughs> a bit of a drawback if you're trying to get A-grade A-levels in physics and chemistry. Uh, so I did other things at, at Aberdeen and then went on to Glasgow via Colorado, in fact. So a lot of my university choices are based around mountains, which I think I've been in love with my whole life and uh, managed to position my further studies in a way that was close to mountains of various kinds. So I had a fa fantastic time in Glasgow in particular. I was in the Glasgow University Mountaineering Club. He used to have these fabulous T-shirts with a climber hanging off at a vertiginous angle. And the motto was stick with gum. <laughs> G-U-M, Glasgow University, Mountain Pub. And then, of course, a couple of years in Colorado and, and the Rockies was just fantastic. There's there's quicker ways to go Aberdeen to Glasgow. but Yeah, know. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but not better. <laughs> not better. Not better. <laughs> Tell, oh, tell us a bit. Sorry, just to cut you off there, Kate, but I've got a feeling this story is going to be extensive, so I'm just going to pick it piece by piece. Tell us a wee bit about Colorado. What what made you, I know you said mountains, but what made you? Was that purely the reason that made you go out there? No, it wasn't. So um, I was doing a PhD um, at the time, or, or trying to, in applied ethics, and what I was particularly interested was in the relationship between animal welfare issues and environmental issues, which unexpectedly can be quite stormy. So I was doing, an, um, I was supposed to be doing a PhD in in some kind of animal rights, uh, environmental ethics kind of topic, but my supervisors in Glasgow weren't really interested in that um, area. I was in an applied ethics department, but they were much more interested in medical ethics. So I just started looking around the world and uh, Colorado State University in Fort Collins had this amazing master's program with all sorts of interesting stuff. There was a vet there called Bernie Rollin who'd done a lot of ethics work with farmers and with, with other vets. Um, and then there was some people doing development ethics, which is all about the ethics and values that drive our vision of development in what we used to call well, what we still call the global south, what we used to call the third world. And there was a strong environmental component. So I got really lucky and I got a travel grant and they gave me a teaching assistantship, which meant that I could pay for my studies and also learn a bit about how to teach, which meant I was much more employable when I got back. Um, but the main thing I remember was <laughs> I, I signed up for loads and loads of courses because suddenly I was surrounded by things I was really, really interested in. And um, after a month, my head of department called me in and said, so how are you doing? What are you up to? And I told him, he kind of looked at me and he said, hmm, as your head of department, I order you to drop two subjects and learn how to ski. <laughs> and his point was, I was in Colorado. I was, it was about to be winter. I'd come from Europe. I didn't know how to ski. It would be a ridiculous waste of an opportunity. And I thought that was so refreshing from a sort of academic boss to, to have that message. So I did. I dropped two subjects and... I learned how to ski in Colorado. Perfect powder. It was amazing. That sounds like a cool head of department. Yeah. yeah. Do you still ski? Um, off and on. I used to, and then I, I didn't get, get much skiing for about 20 years, and I tried to take it up again recently, and that was a bit mortifying, actually. <laughs> it turns out if you don't ski for 20 years and you've aged 20 years, the combination isn't conducive to doing black runs straight away. Let's just say that. I can believe that, in fairness. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that kind of checks out, yeah. Um, <laughs> so you've, you've, you've moved to Colorado, you've done two years there. Uh, what, what was next? 
So I came back, um, kind of finished the PhD. Well, I did finish the PhD, but coming back to Glasgow in the winter, I mean, I love Glasgow, don't get me wrong, but coming back from Colorado to Glasgow, going into winter um, with an unfinished PhD and lots of, you know how Glasgow is in the winter, just and endlessly wet and dark. And, um, and eventually I bailed out and I went to live on a friend's eco farm in Devon um, it's kind of a long story, but she she was a really interesting woman. So she was trying to figure out how to farm in a way that was really environmentally friendly and had high animal welfare. So I thought, well, she'll be the final chapter of my PhD. And I used that as an excuse to go live there for the last bit of my PhD. She also bred Arab endurance horses and I used to ride a lot. So um, I was a jockey for one of her smaller ponies. I'm quite little. I'm only five foot one or two depending on the ruler of choice. Um, so she used yeah. to, to jockey some of her smaller uh, ponies, which were often the fastest and toughest, actually. So that was that was also a really fun era. So I finished my PhD on this eco-farm. <laughs> my computer was, this is quite a while ago, remember, but my computer was powered by a tractor battery. And um, <laughs> after a while, the battery would start to go flat and I would have to put it in the tractor and drive around for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a really yeah, <laughs> first first tractor powered a uh, hey, laptop we've had on. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty old stuff. Yeah, <laughs> but so yeah, just, so I just did... of interest. Yeah, sorry, uh, yeah, just the eco farm. What was what 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 was the the obviously the goal was obvious, but what what was actually happening? Well, their goal was to be completely self sufficient in terms of food for themselves and their animals on a relatively low acreage without using artificial pesticides or fertilizers. So it was a really, really interesting challenge. But they also, as I say, were really concerned that the welfare of the animals was very, very high. So they had this idea that the animals should be able to perform all the behaviors in the animal's natural repertoire, unless that caused suffering to others. So they ran stallions together and uh, their animals were very, very free range, obviously. Um, and so I kind of used that uh, as a case study. They tried not to use uh, diesel. They did use diesel, but they also did a lot of plowing with horses, which is a fascinating thing to learn how to do. And actually a lot more efficient and effective than you might think. Um, and it completely sort of changes the relationship between you and the land that you're, you're working with. So, yeah, it was, it was a, fascinating, a fascinating period of time. Using more diesel to run the computer than actually the farm. Don't mention that bit. <laughs> that's it. No, that's it. That's it. Uh, yeah, I never thought emails would be using diesel. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> in the in the good old days, I used to drive the tractor as well. I I uh, learned how to you know drive a tractor and did, did various jobs when they were using the tractor so yeah it was it was I thoroughly enjoyed that period of time and eventually did finally squeak the PhD through at the very 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 last final 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 deadline so I became officially Dr. Rawls um, which was very gratifying especially to my bank manager to say no I'm no longer Mrs. or Ms. or Ms. I'm a doctor ha take that <laughs> yeah, it's quite cool with those two letters in front of your name in fairness. Yeah. It's got to be got to come a bit of power that. Uh, yeah, well, you finally you got through that with probably the most interesting way of doing a PhD. You know, a lot of people just stay in an office, write for three years, 
Um, you've you've certainly made it an experience, uh, as will be definitely the sort of theme of this episode and, and your life in general, Kate. Uh, PhD's done. Um, I can't imagine you were someone that just wanted to sit still. Well, so I'm, I'm on the eco farm and somebody sent me um, uh, an advert for a job at Lancaster University and it was just for one or two years, I can't remember. I was kind of allergic to commitment at this point. Um, <laughs> so I don't really want a job, but I do need a job. And this was teaching animal ethics and um, environmental ethics in a philosophy department in Lancaster. My background was actually philosophy. Um, so I thought, okay, so I remember I rode to the post office on one of the ponies and delivered my application. And then sometime later, an invitation to interview uh, came up. So then I rode back into town and bought a shirt from Oxfam and <laughs> so I muffled up the train fare. And anyway, long story short, I got this job at, at Lancaster University. So I was teaching um, really good stuff, sort of sustainability and um, applied ethics or the focus on animals and the environment, which was great. Um, and I, I was quite young at that point and I had a really great relationship with my students who saw me as this slightly wacky creature who'd piloted in from somewhere. <clears throat> and we used to do pretty crazy things. I mean, most philosophy departments are pretty academic and pretty serious. And we used to do field trips. And I remember taking them all to the zoo to look at the animal welfare issues there. <laughs> and then we went up to, to the island of Rum to look at nature conservation uh, as it was under SNH in those days on, on Rum. So we did some fun stuff. But then in the end, I well, in the end, it fairly quickly became apparent that I'm not really cut out for an academic life. I really should have done something more kind of activist inclined. So my job was to teach students to think intelligently about these issues but not to do anything about them and I really wanted to be doing something about about the animal welfare issues that we were discussing particularly in intensive farming and also to do something about the environmental impacts that we were learning about in those days so eventually I, I, I quit and went off into a more freelance direction. And where did freelance take you? Well, freelance took me, I, I, I got a voluntary severance deal, so which was pretty generous. So freelance took me into a bit of swanning about, <laughs> if the truth be told. And then um, I moved up to the Lake District uh, in, in Cumbria. When I was at Lancaster, I was always heading for the Lake District to go hill walking, and those were my nearest hills. And so when I left university, I, I was able to move up there. Um, and then after a while, I, I realised that, this money wasn't going to last forever. And I managed to get a half-time job at the University of Cumbria. At that point, it was just a small college, in fact, teaching outdoor studies, but again, with a strong sort of environmental component. So that was also great. And because it was half-time, I had a lot more flexibility to go off traveling in the gaps and so on. So that, that was good. So I was there for another 10 years. And traveling's pretty much a... Uh... Uh, well, from what I know about you, Kate, which is a short chat with your brother and uh, a quick glance at the website when I was in the pickup before saying yes and not really reading much more because that's kind of how I like to do it, <laughs> um, is <clears throat> you mentioned philosophy and you mentioned the outdoors, which is actually a brand or a website at least that you've created called Outdoor Philosophy. And that sort of idea of, you know, traveling to expand yourself is something I used to hear of and think, oh, it's cool, you see, whatever, but... In the last few months, I've realized the sort of 
sheer power of of cultural education and just learning. A, well, I think we've been to nine countries since August. Um, like just amazing what you can learn doing that. Um, when did you realize like that that was something that you could actually see your life revolving around? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I've never really traveled. Well, no, that's not quite true. I've mostly traveled for some particular reason, like I went to Colorado to study or um, I've done quite a lot of trips on my bike in mountains. I ended, I ended up uh, taking up quitting horses, really, and, and getting more involved in cycling. Bicycles are so much more straightforward than horses. Yeah. <laughs> they don't need shoeing, they don't have rat bills. You can bang them in the hallway and they don't need brass, right? So, um, yeah, I ended up doing a lot of cycling. And it was interesting because I was rubbish at sports at school. I mean, like, I was the sporty kid in the library and I hated sports day. And, um, and yet I kind of fell in love with the bicycle as a way of turning quite a boring journey into a mini adventure. And I also realised that you don't have to be all that athletic to ride a bike increasingly long distances. Um, and I discovered I had a kind of a long distance head, in fact, like I quite like just being on my bike all day and I'm never I'm not fast, but I can keep going. So I sort of fell in love with cycling and, it, and of course it was cycling in mountains. So over the years, I managed to take my bike to the Alps and the Pyrenees and um, and then I did a trip in the Andes. The first Andes trip was back in 1992. And that was exactly what you say. I mean, such an eye opener to really encounter proper poverty for the first time for example um and to yeah to witness all sorts of of yeah different aspects of south american life and very different cultures so that was a huge a huge eye opener and in those days i used to use my bike rides as a way of raising money so i would always be sort of raising some money for i think in that case it was it was either oxfam or scottish war on want i can't remember so I was sort of very interested in <clears throat> trying to find a way to have these ad many adventures on my bike, but give, give give something back in the process as well. So uh, what kind of distances would you kind of be covering on these long days when you said it just kind of, it didn't bother you that you just kind of kept going? What kind of distances are we talking? Yeah, it really varied. So in the early days, I think the first long the longest trip, the first, my first long trip was the mouth to the source of the Rhone, just after I graduated from Aberdeen. So that would have been 86. And me and a friend called Mandy uh, flew to Marseille and then cycled back, basically, up the Rhone Valley, which was fantastic because, of course, the Rhone Valley is full of vineyards, right? <laughs> so we basically vineyard hopped our way through France in sunshine. And that was a kind of a revelation. Like, my God, I'd grown up in mostly in Aberdeenshire and suddenly you realise there are mountains that are sunny and warm and have grapes growing around them. So that was it. I was sort of hooked. But I think, you know, I can't remember what distances we were doing. Probably not vast, like 50, 60 miles a day or something. And then later mm -hmm. trips were built around 75 mile a day averages. I did one that was built on a 90 day 90 mile a day and that was a bit much actually so it, it varies a lot from not much to 100 and something on the on the really longer days i think you'd be breaking some cycling under influence laws by the sounds of that <laughs> <laughs> sure not. <laughs> it doesn't count as that. <laughs> that's it that's it and it's you know for the for the viewers listening um well, uh, 
we've mentioned your website there, Kate, and I strongly advise you go look it up. Um, but we'll, we'll get to your book as well, which we will mention too. But just before we do, uh, you you mentioned the, the terms a little bit of cycling and a trip. Now, I think it'd be fair to say they're understatements of the year. <laughs> I mean, your 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 cycle across the road there, as you say. I mean, first off, it sounds idyllic. Um, but it pales in comparison to your South American trip from a size perspective. Um, it was your South American trip that Bill originally said that was sort of the story that really drew me to you. And there's much more to you than just this South American trip. But tell us about that South American trip that we're talking about. So the South American trip was, um, it was actually in 2017, primarily um, 2017, 2018. And it was the latest in what I've come to think of as Adventure Plus. So using somewhat adventurous bike rides to help raise awareness and inspire action on our really big, urgent environmental challenges. And the first one was actually back in 2006, where I cycled from Texas to Alaska, following the Rocky Mountains, um, looking at climate change as a big issue. And then I wrote a worst selling book called The Carbon Cycle, <laughs> great title, eh? um, which was about that ride, but also about climate change and, and how we needed to change our values, amongst other things, as well as our technology in order to, to tackle it. So then I went back to work and kind of got a bit bogged down in the academic system again, and then finally managed to escape to do this latest trip in 2017. And one of the reasons I did that was because I had done some research for the courses I was teaching and came across an article by a scientist called Johan Rockstrom. And he and a team of researchers were arguing that biodiversity loss was at least as dangerous as climate change, if not more dangerous. And I was like, whoa, really? I mean, I already knew how dangerous climate change was by that stage. And so I became really intrigued by this and, and a bit horrified by the by that thought. And, and so the focus of the South American journey was biodiversity loss and what biodiversity is and why it matters and what's happening to it and above all what we can do about it. And of course, with my kind of passion for mountains, South America was the obvious place to go because it's got the Andes, the longest mountain chain in the world, but also it's probably the most biodiverse continent on earth with this extraordinary range of different habitats and ecosystems, like everything from Caribbean coastline to Paramo grassland to high mountains to desert, rainforests and cloud forests. So I decided to, I quit my job and um, I decided to just go and I took a year and a half and, and went. I'm really, really privileged to be able to do that. I don't have kids. Um, we paid off our mortgage. My partner was prepared to pay the bills while I was away. So so I went. Um, and I cycled from the north of South America, following the Andes, more or less, down to the bottom, <clears throat> excuse me, which was 8,288 miles, exploring biodiversity and meeting the most extraordinary range of absolutely brilliant activists and people working to protect their lands and their communities from various kinds of onslaughts of one kind or another. So what, what what countries is that? Is that let me see if I can guess this. I don't know. <laughs> Just trying to think. So you've got you rather than me. Venezuela, Suriname, Guyana over the top. So it's not going to be them. I'm going to say Colombia, Ecuador. Yep. yep. Bolivia. I've got that's too far over. That's too far over. 
Colombia, Ecuador. Chile's just so tall. It could all be Chile. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it could all be Chile. <laughs> Colombia, Ecuador, Bolivia, and Chile is my guess. So it was Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia. Yeah, I went into Peru, uh, Peru, Bolivia, Chile, Argentina. It should add up to six. I think we've missed one somewhere. Yeah. Um, Colombia, but, yeah. Ecuador, Bolivia, <laughs> Peru, Argentina, Chile. Yeah, that's six. That's six. Yeah. 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 Wow. So it was a it was a fantastic journey, and I made it on a bike that I had built myself. Um, I went on a course at the Bamboo Bicycle Club in London and learned how to build the bike from bamboo. And we managed to source the bamboo from the Eden Project in Cornwall. So um, the bike is called Woody. And we think Woody is the UK's first homegrown bicycle. I was going to say, I had his name Woody. Yeah, that's that's, that's brilliant. And this is... And just to throw it in, because I think it'll be up your street, I'm spending nine days in Campo Grande and, um, oh, that's terrible. That has just completely skipped my mind. It begins with an S. Two, two places, basically. It looks like they're on the border from Argentina and Brazil, but truth is it's probably about 300 miles into Brazil. Um, spending two weeks there, or a week and a half there in March, um, and just South America, like you say, is a place that has just absolutely fascinated me for some time. Um, and just before I ask the question about to ask Kate, the one thing you mentioned was the, the sort of potential of biodiversity loss. You know, carbon is such a thing at the minute, and I think rightly so. Um, but I think we've focused so hard on this is the, the evil, there's nothing else wrong. And I think biodiversity and, you know, diversity, whether that's cultural, bio, whatever, I think is so important. And I think a loss of that is really scary. And just while you mention it, um, hopeless plug from a podcast perspective if anyone's listening is interested in that jump to number 157 I filmed with one of the other people on my Nuffield cohort Dan Dan Jones is um you may have in 2016 seen a thing about the Great Orm Estate in Wales um going up for a one pound tenancy the farm side and Dan was the man that got it, and he just speaks so passionately about nature-friendly farming, biodiversity. Um, so yeah, it could be an interesting one for you to listen to. But but on that cycle, Kate, were, were you just, did you just leave, you know, you started the cycle in North South America, which is very hard to say. Um, <laughs> did you just leave and think, I'll find someone to stay with? Or did you plan it as you go? I can't imagine you could plan that as you go. You can't, You there's no way you can plan more than the beginning, really. Um, so I had a couple of contacts, uh, friends of friends who were, you know, working in environmental areas of different kinds. And I think I must, I had a base camp to start with in Cartagena in Colombia when I landed for a few days. Um, but no, I mean, you get going and then you meet, you meet people and then they introduce you to other people and then they suggest, oh, you must go there. And, and you end up with more invitations than you can possibly say yes to. I mean, honestly, I could still be in Colombia. I met so many amazing people there in particular. And Colombia is just, I think it's my favourite country on earth. I mean, it's just so friendly and welcoming and there's music everywhere and there's a really strong cycling culture. And it's incredibly biodiverse. It's the second most biodiverse country on earth. Second beautiful rolling hills and gorgeous forest. And yeah, and, and just a just a, a very quick question about Colombia, because I feel like South America is going to, like I did with Hattie an hour ago about Burma, I'm just going to absolutely blast you at questions about South America. Apologies. But Colombia probably has a negative 
air over its head, especially late 80s, mid 90s. Um, one man, really. But uh, is that still a thing? Is it still, I don't know, were you in like Medellin, Bogota, that sort of thing, or were you rural based? But is, is there is there still a, you know, a lot of this is negatively built on cocaine here? Or is, is that a thing or is that not a thing at all? Well, I mean, I think there's bits of Bogota you probably wouldn't go to on your own, but this is true of Glasgow, right? Or Birmingham. Or, yeah, definitely. And, and I was there in 2017, so they signed the peace process at the back end of 2016. Right. And so people were just so delighted that tourists were starting to come back because to the Colombian people that signified that Colombia was starting to be understood to be safe again. And so they were super keen to encourage that. So I've never felt safer in my life, honestly. Just everybody was dead keen to make sure that visitors were looked after. And um, and it, it was also fascinating because when I was there in 92, I started my journey in Venezuela and cycled from Venezuela through Colombia and into Ecuador. So that's a dog slurping water in the background. I don't know if you can hear that. Oh, it's not, it's not walking past there. <laughs> it's not my stomach. <laughs> Um, <laughs> he's, he's a very noisy water slurper. <laughs> yeah, so uh, <laughs> he's a big dog. Uh, so yeah, in that, at that point, Venezuela was the safe country, and people say, "Oh my goodness, are you really going to cycle through Colombia on your own?" Well, I was with a, an, another friend, um, and we we were fine; we had no problems. But um, in 2017, it was the other way around. Like I wouldn't have gone into Venezuela at that point, but and Colombia was the safe country. So that was quite an interesting transition. Was, and yeah, very part of the world. So sorry, Kate. Um, was was that around the time where is Venezuela not of an inflation rate like mid sixty thousand percent? Yeah. So really, their, their currency just meant nothing for a while. Yeah, exactly. And there's just been a oh. It was basically a sort of a collapse of the political system through just lots of cronyism and people being put into posts that they weren't competent to manage. And uh, inflation went insane and people were leaving Venezuela in droves. It's become a very, very unstable place to be. I mean, it's just tragic because it's one of the richer of the South American countries and didn't need to go in that direction, but suffered from just hideous political mismanagement. And still is, of course, still is. So a lot there were a lot of Venezuelan refugees in oh, oh, was there? Right, okay, yeah. And was I think you know we we're in a position where, um, in the UK we're looking to take refugees, and I think there's some pretty archaic mindsets around that. I think it would be fair to say diplomatically. Uh, how how. Oh, you've just frozen. I think we froze there. Yeah, how, how, yeah, we're, we're good now, I think. How, how receptive were Colombia uh, of refugees, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't studying that aspect of it particularly, but when I met refugees and I met Colombians talking about it, they were as welcoming as they could possibly have been. Um, uh, it's it's hard to comment really as somebody that's just sort of cycling through but the impression I got was it was it was a welcoming country and people were just feeling desperately sorry that their neighbor was going through this kind of this kind of trauma I mean of course I, yeah. I guess it gets to a point where you, you, 
people start to think, well, how many refugees can we can we look after successfully? But to my knowledge, that wasn't the dominant conversation in, in Colombia. It was more and about you mentioned that was yeah, for sure, and it was much more humanitarian for sure. And yeah. you sort of mentioned that you know what you were studying wasn't wasn't that, and, and probably raises a good point. You weren't just cycling. You know, you, you were, well, you were, it was the way you were getting there, but but you were doing much more. You were stopping off and you, you said a year and a half. I mean, to be honest, if you'd said you were cycling all of South America, I'd have probably thought it would have taken about 40 years. But, you know, um, you you it probably would have taken much less time than it did because you were doing stuff as you go. And, and how, how do you even go about implementing that? Like, how does that, that's just amazing to me, you know? So the actual cycling was, was 13 months and then it, the whole thing added up to a year and a half because I went there back on a cargo ship which was also part of the adventure I wanted to keep my carbon footprint down as low as possible and do the whole trip without flying um, and so I traveled by cargo ship which I, it, it's a sort of a paradox because the cargo ship industry is one of the biggest carbon emitters on the planet but per passenger mile if you travel by ship rather than by plane you reduce your footprint um, so I did that. It, it was, it, and that was also fascinating, as you can imagine, to spend time on these ships. Like there's just thousands of them, and they're constantly moving stuff all over the planet, um, in a way that's ac actually quite mad when you start to look at it. But, um, and there are people living on these ships for up to a year at a time. It's a really, it's a whole another way of life that is usually invisible to most of us. So that was fascinating. Um, and in terms of, well, how do you do it? You just kind of start and then keep going. <laughs> and the cycling, honestly, is the easy bit. I mean, that you just get into a rhythm and you cycle, you eat, you cycle, you eat and sleep, and then you cycle some more kind of thing. What was what was more challenging was finding the projects and uh, finding the right people to talk to and then trying to turn that into some kind of coherent story rather than a rambling set of, of anecdotes. Which I may or may not have succeeded to do in the book, which is which is another part of the story, of course. I'll leave you yeah. to judge. Yeah, well, that's it. That's it. And I'm here. I'm sure. Do you know what? If I do read the book, it will be the first book I've ever read, which is very embarrassing. But um, um, that's true. Twenty six. Wow. Never read a book. Um, anyway, that's a. I don't know why I outed myself there. Anyway, uh, t tell us about you know, Kate, okay, when <clears throat> I was in Tanzania and Rwanda. Uh, in August and uh, yeah just amazing life-changing had never really traveled before basically got asked five weeks before um, can you come to Tanzania and Rwanda I said yes I didn't even know if I had a passport I would have paid the 600 quid to get it the next day like I was going yeah and you went and whether it was the Kigali Memorial Museum the Aston Vision <coughs> Nursery um, and a oh god that's terrible what do you call a place with adopted kids that's terrible foster care unit or um just a gorgeous waterfall halfway up Kilimanjaro like whatever it was you met people you saw things that just changed your life um I mean one interaction with someone has literally changed me for some time that now I'm a literal funder of a place you know but tell us about some of those because we you see people on Instagram and like you mentioned there about the <clears throat> Uh, the cargo ship, uh, the guy, the first person ever has just last month landed back in Denmark, which 
finalised his trip to be the first person ever to go to every single country without getting in a plane. Um, hmm. Pedersen, once upon once upon a side, what a go look at it. Um, but you see Instagram folk travelling. There's also this idea that you know jumping off a plane and standing on the ground counts. I just think that's weird. But it's that connection with people and culture and what makes that place that place tick and all that stuff that that really was amazing for me and that was only three weeks tell us about some of those connections Kate you know who did you meet what what were their stories and 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 what were the ones that I'm sure you had a few moments in your year and a half where you probably had a life-changing time you know what, what were those moments like oh well they were amazing and that I mean this is why I I'm just not interested in speed on a bike journey so that you can cycle from one end of South America to another a heck of a lot quicker than 13 months. I mean, people have done it in, a, in just a handful of months, but then you're blasting through all these cultures and you don't have time to stop and speak to folk, right? So I was definitely taking my time and uh, being open to encounters and, and meeting people. And I, honestly, I don't know where to start with the amazing people I met. So some of them were working on sort of nature regeneration projects in a fairly conventional way, as you would imagine, um, given my biodiversity focus. So there were people working on forest regeneration and so on. But even then, there were there were always like these multiple strands to the project. So, for example, in northern Colombia, one of the biggest drivers of deforestation isn't sort of big agribusiness as it is in Brazil. It's small local farmers uh, cutting down trees to have a very, very extensive beef cattle uh, farming process. They have 10 acres per animal and each of those acres is cleared of trees. And you also get the phenomenon where people are cutting down trees literally to grow food for their families. And often they just don't have any choice. So the, so the kind of forest regeneration and ecological regeneration projects I visited almost always had other strands to them like community engagement, community development and income generation and poverty alleviation. So there was one project I visited that I'll never forget. Their focus was, was monkeys, cotton top tamarind monkeys, whose nickname is Titi monkeys because they're literally pint size, they're tiny little things. And they spend their whole lives in the trees. They never touch the ground for their whole lives. I mean, can you imagine what a different way of living on Earth than the way we live on Earth? But there's only 2% of their forest habitat left um, because people cut the trees down for different reasons. So this project was working to protect the monkeys by trying to protect the forest and regenerate the forest. But to do that, they had to give people another source of income. And the way they did that was to collect waste plastic. And this was in an area that didn't have any rubbish collection, let alone any recycling. And then they developed this process where they could turn the plastic into flakes and then the flakes into these really durable fence posts. It's a very hot, humid climate. And then they could sell the fence posts into the richer farming community for more money than they could make by the illegal wildlife trade or by cutting down trees and growing food. So it was just a fabulous kind of win-win. They ended up protecting the monkeys, but they also were working with the local communities to improve their quality of life and give them other ways of earning money and educate them about the role of the monkeys as in, you know in the ecosystem that they were in and how important trees are and so on. So that was that was just one example of 
um, the way the successful projects were always win-win. It was always about improving human quality of life and improving the natural ecosystems. It was never either or, or it just didn't work. And I saw that story again and again, whether it was through trying to protect uh, local fishing stocks or, um, yeah, trying to protect the forest in, in other ways through income generation. It was it was always this, you know, po- yes and both and nature and people not either or kind of thing so i went i went to lots of projects of that kind that were just super inspiring and often run by quite a few people small numbers of people with this big big impact they were having i think we can learn a lot from you know i've, I've said a few times in the podcast i hate the term developed world yeah I think really. yeah i think it's worse than first world to be honest and the reason i say that is I've said this a few times, like, are we at the stage we just stop? Like, we don't develop anymore? Like, what, what does that mean? But that idea of benefiting both the people and we're not good at. <laughs> it seems to be one or the one or t'other here, which is which is pretty bad. But we're, with these sort of projects you're talking about, Kate, is it is it mainly sort of tribe-based or is it like, I don't want to say conventional community, but like sort of more what we would expect, you know, is it, is this purely rural? Is it sometimes suburban? You know, what sort of, what sort of communities are you working with? So these, uh, most of the first bunch of projects I visited were uh, with kind of um, Spanish, Spanish origin white farmers, small communities um, in the north of, of Colombia. Um, there were tribal indigenous peoples in the area but the people I met weren't working with them. They were learning from them, but they weren't necessarily working with them. They've already got sustainable ways of living, right? They don't need Western experts to come in and show them how to how to live sustainably because they've been doing it all along. Um, and that's another way in which the term developed is really interesting, isn't it? Like, actually, it's the developed world, so-called developed world, that is driving biodiversity loss and climate change, um, not the developing world, although the developing world if it aspires to be the developed world, will, of course, become a, a, a problem in that regard. So, yeah, I think those terms are appalling, really. We definitely need different ones. But, yeah, so these these were mostly rural-based projects working with um, the sort of Spanish-origin communities. And another one was a school where the entire curriculum was based on turtles. And the kids did this turtle math. So the turtle is swimming this far for this long. How far does she get? And they... They did turtle creative writing where they told the story of the turtle from egg to going out to sea. And then they worked with a local aquarium that was breeding captive bred turtles and learned about turtle biology. And then they released them when the time was ready across a beach that they had cleaned of plastic. I mean, can you imagine a more powerful experience for a kid? And then some of the turtles had trackers on them so they could follow their journeys sort of out to sea. And of course, all the kids turned out, you know, they ended up being absolute informed, passionate eco-warriors as they went through that school process, but in a really intelligent sort of constructive kind of way. So I, I really loved the turtle school. I thought we could learn a lot, a lot from that, really. So is there anything that you've seen in South America? It's obviously very different environments and things we have to deal with here, but is there anything that you feel that we should really be uh, taking on board in our systems and how we do things in the UK and uh, anything that you would change? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it's a, it's a really good question. I mean, 
there are many, many things we can learn from all sorts of different indigenous communities about living more locally, living more sustainably, about working with nature rather than against nature. And that's that's a bit of a cliche, <clears throat> excuse me, I guess. I mean, lots of people have said those kinds of things for a very long time about learning from indigenous communities. But I think another thing I took away was I met quite by accident um, a woman who was anti-gold mining activist. And that sort of took my story off on what I thought was a tangent but it turned out to take me right to the heart of the story. So um, she was called Jennifer, and again, it was in Colombia, and she and a group of young people were trying to stop Anglegold Ashanti, which is one of the biggest gold mining corporations in the world, based in South Africa. Terrible human rights record, a terrible environmental record. And Anglegold wanted to bring in this massive gold mine into a very agricultural, high watery part of Colombia. And it would have had devastating impacts on the water, mercury and other toxins leach into the into the water inevitably, um, and on the wildlife and on the ability to farm. And so this group of young people got together and um did an amazing educational campaign and then hosted a public referendum, which they won. I mean, the, the communities voted against the gold mine overwhelmingly, but in the process, two of the young people were murdered. Um, and I then discovered that there's a whole campaign organized by some people called Global Witness that are monitoring the murders of people they refer to as environmental defenders. And these are people in communities all over the world that are murdered while they're standing up for their lands and their ecosystems and their communities, often against big multinationals who want to come in and to extract whatever it is. Um, and so I ended up learning about the extractivist industries like gold, but also silver, oil, obviously, copper, um, and how all of those industries have this phenomenal impact on, on local societies and on nature. I mean, just phenomenal impact. Um, and then how that then feeds back into our supply chain and, um, and our own consumerism turns out to have these footprints all over the world, which I guess is kind of obvious, but when you actually look it in the eye, so to speak, um, it's very, very, I found it very, very powerful. Very powerful. I went to see a lead mine in the middle of a city in Peru and when I say in the middle of the city, there were houses ringed around the edge of this chasm that had led at the bottom. And there were still people living in the houses. And there's no safe level of lead in a young person's bloodstream. So a lot of the young people in this city, which is called Cerro de Pasco, Cerro de Pasco in Peru, a lot of these young people have brain development problems. Plus, the thing is at 14,000 feet, so the toxic tailings from the lead mine go straight into the water source, including rivers that end up in the Amazon. So it was just so impactful to literally look at this stuff, to see capitalism at its worst, and to realise the links between environmental and social degradation in other parts of the world and my lifestyle here. Um, and so that's then led me since to really think about consumerism as part of the problem and growth economics that requires consumerism and, and to think that actually, if we're going to tackle biodiversity or climate change, we need very, very big changes to the way we meet our needs as humans on the planet, 
and to our economic and political systems. So it turned, my kind of biodiversity journey turned into this kind of epic story of the need to take down global capitalism and completely change our economic system, which as you can imagine, I'm still kind of grappling with. When, when I've solved it, you can do another podcast maybe. That's <laughs> a really, I'll have to get you over that. Um, go on, <laughs> here. Okay, I think if you solve that, you won't be doing the R2 cast. I think it'll be on Rogan or, you know, something like that. But, uh, yeah. Wow. That's, a, that's amazing, this one, yeah. that, isn't it? That's a Jeez. lot. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. What's, what's Chile like? Chile interests me because, you know, we sort of think of Santiago and that's about all I really know about Chile. And it's, well, it's, it's the longest, what is it, that... It's the longest country per its width on the planet, isn't it? Um, yeah, so it's it's very very long, isn't it? It's, it goes. I, I don't know how what percentage of South America, sort of north to south, is Chile. I, I'm not oh, sure, it, but it must be about sixty, because I mean, it, it, it even actually I'm comes sure under Argentina, that, yeah. doesn't it? It sort of comes. Yeah. Also, side fact, we did a wee Google of the cotton top tamarind. That is the cutest thing on the planet. Isn't it just? so? Jeez. Wait a minute. I'm just going to quickly jump to maps here and we'll just zoom out from Dumfries because that's not going to help us too much. But um, It's a little bit far away from Chile. Yeah. <laughs> it's a wee bit, isn't it? Uh, no, we're just loading the, the Atlantic at the minute. It's, I mean, from what I understand, it's about three quarters way up Peru. It stops, I think. Yeah, or you've got an actual map that might be better yeah, than we, Apple Maps at the minute. Yeah. It's not doing too well. Yeah, I would say. I would say it's it's at least it's at least well you know you never know with the paper map do you because the projection oh, no, can be. It's clear, halfway but... up Bolivia. Sorry, I'm wrong. It's halfway up Bolivia. So yeah, I mean, height wise, that's, that's a fact. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah. Maybe. So yeah, what, what's it like? Because it must be so varied in in oh. sort of environment. It must be completely. Also, it was Campo Grande, Campo Grande, and Bonito oh, we're going okay. to do it in Brazil. Mm. Um, yeah, but what what is Chile like? Because I assume you must have spent half your time doing Chile, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you went into Argentina a bit. But uh, yeah, what's it like? Oh, Chile is amazing. Um, so, so yes, it's, it's often referred to as a, this long, thin country, isn't it? It just goes, it just tracks all the way down that side of South America. Um, and so it's incredibly varied. So I came into Chile from Bolivia and kind of popped out into the northern half of the Atacama Desert, basically. So my a, a chunk of my time in Chile was in the desert, and it's one of the driest deserts on Earth. There's bits of the desert where it hasn't rained for 40 years. I mean, living in Cumbria or Glasgow. <laughs> so, <I can't laughs> but, um, so you've got that at one end. And then at the other end of Chile is a place called the Lake District, which is sort of interesting because I now live in the Lake District in the UK. But the Chilean, the Chilean Lake District, it could not be more different from the Atacama Desert. I mean, it's really lush. It's really wet. Um, it's full of forests and of course it's full of lakes so and then you've pretty much got everything in between and then as you get into Patagonia you've got these spectacular mountains just some of the most beautiful mountains on earth so yeah amazing amazing country quite a lot wealthier than some of the others so uh, my life got a bit more expensive when I got to Chile plus it also has perhaps the most delicious drink on the planet the Pisco Sour 
which I became a, a, a massive fan of. I hadn't heard of it before I got to Chile, but Pisco Sour is a kind of a, it's a grape-based spirit, Pisco is, and it, and it has a lot of lime in it, and it's sort of sweet and sour and absolutely delicious. So yes, What's my your, life got more... Well, you need to go to Chile. Because, I mean... yeah, exactly. <laughs> partly because of the cost of living, but partly because I developed Pisco Sour habit. We're just looking at the, we're at, just as you're saying that, we're looking at the dimensions of, so Chile is 4,270 kilometres. Tall's not the right word, but up and down. And, uh, yeah, and it's averaging 177 kilometres west east to east. east. Yeah. That's mental. Yeah. It's like a line. Well, that, well that's, that's like the um, width of Scotland. Like the border, yes, in Scotland, yeah, roughly, it is. it is. Um, but it's about the length of Europe. Yeah, from Scotland to the south of Europe. Yeah, well, had we went in our trip to Ukraine? No, it's about double that. Is it? Yeah, Edinburgh. I was taking a punt at that. Uh, Perthish to Ukraine. Can you not get to Africa? Was, I believe, two thousand kilometers. Oh, easily get to Africa. Oh, easily, easily. I mean, Africa's closer than Ukraine. That's mental to think. Isn't yeah, it? that's cool. It's longer Jeez, than it's, a, huge. it's longer than Europe. Yeah, oh, way yeah. longer than Europe. Like double. Well, yeah, the world's an interesting place. And yeah. what, what's I, Atacama Desert must have been? It's not, not quite difficult to cycle in. Well, I was on roads. Um, For sure, I, yeah. I, I don't mean that. I mean, like, heat-wise and that. that yeah, yeah no, but, uh, but I mean, sometimes when, when people, when I when I say I cycled across the Atacama Desert, I think people envisage kind of sand dunes. And uh, number one, <laughs> it's brown. It's mostly brown. It's not a kind of a sandy colour. Um, and number two, I, w I was on roads. So that obviously made life a bit easier. But yeah, it was hot and it was also windy. I mean, wind is, is your biggest challenge as a cyclist often. Um, when you're when you're cycling, you get a certain amount of relief from the heat just by being in motion. It's actually easier yeah. to cycle than walk when it's really hot. Um, but if you've got a head a hot headwind, that's just a killer. I mean, it's <laughs> when you're working really, really, really hard to go downhill because it's so so windy and so. And then of course the heat is just desiccating. So that was my biggest challenge in the Atacama. Really, was was the winds, but I did I did on one occasion run out of water. I didn't. I thought there was a settlement where there wasn't, and so I wasn't carrying enough water, and I had to flag down a truck, and I asked the the driver if I could buy any water from him, and he gave me this little bottle of water and a massive bottle of ginger ale. <laughs> so should you ever need to know this, you can cook spaghetti in ginger ale, and it actually tastes quite good. Ginger ale really? spaghetti. That's a new one. Yeah. Gives it a certain fizz. It's, yeah, really quite good. For for tent food, like. Did you was there many nights that you got stuck where you kind of struggled to find a bed for the night? So um I didn't camp at all in Colombia and Ecuador. It's sort of camping wasn't really a thing there. And I was I was a little bit nervous of trying to wild camp because that really wasn't a thing in uh, where I was in Colombia and Ecuador is very populated so it was quite hard to hide but as the journey progressed and particularly um, from Peru onwards I just did more and more and more camping and I just became really expert at sort of seeing places I could hide a tent 
because I had quite a small tent, obviously, um, and it was self-standing, which means you can pitch it anywhere. You just you don't need to be able to get your tent pegs in. Um, and so I I camped on balconies and under bridges and behind the road and all sorts of bizarre places and absolutely loved that side of the journey actually I think I went a bit feral in the end and my tent became my burrow <laughs> that I put up and retreat from the world <laughs> and I always felt really safe in my tent I really like that that little space yeah, it was great. Yeah, totally. you're sort of hidden away in it, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Look, I'm just, I'm just like looking. Uh, yeah, it's sort of that little wee cove that you're in, and that's you. I'm just, I'm just looking at maps here, uh, Kate, because I was always under the impression that Chile sort of looped under Argentina, but I seem to be wrong. So, where, where did it end? Where did you stop? So my journey. Or did you ended- go to like Ushuaia? Yeah, I went to Ushuaia, which whose nickname is the end of the earth. And that's where my journey ended. And Ushuaia is in Argentina. So um I did cross I did cross the border into Argentina on a couple of occasions, but um particularly at, at the end there. And that was a fabulous place to end. I mean a lot of cyclists I mean, like- end their journey in, in Ushuaia. So it's got quite a kind of a party feel to it. A lot of exhausted drunk cyclists it's- wandering around. <laughs> yeah, I mean, relative. I mean, for sure. Yeah, On that's ginger ale. Eating ginger ale flavored <laughs> spaghetti. Um, I mean, just looking at the map, and you know, anyone listen, I encourage you to do this. I am a complete geography nerd. I mean, you can probably tell that from some of the knowledge I've got about it. But like that sort of basically from Valdivia, Valdivia, Valdivia down is just the most broken up bit of land you could just loads of little tiny islands and stuff were were you all mainland or did you go into islands here and there because i mean ashwaya itself is mainland but i mean just you know uh, there's a lot of broken bits in between it yeah was there any boats involved we're just i mean like at the minute we're looking at if you were to go ashwaya you've almost got to go onto punta arenas come over there on a bridge here to terra del fuego and then come down Right? Yes, yeah, so there, there were a couple of short ferry crossings, and there was a big bridge. Um, and and I think at one point it's technically an island, and then you get back onto the mainland. So it's it's an incredibly broken up coastline. Yeah. And on the way back, so I caught the cargo ship back home from Santiago, which uh, you'll see from your map is a long way back up Chile. And so and I treated myself to a journey there by ferry. So I went up uh, on the through the through those islands and, and chains on the outside on the Pacific side of of Chile, which was just an extraordinary way to finish. It's just right up the sort of southeast of the Ring of Fire, that isn't it? That's just yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So it was. You can imagine. I was absolutely exhausted by the time I got to the end because it turned into a running out of time race to the finish cliche of an ending against beast beastly headwinds. Like headwinds in Patagonia are just in a different league of headwinds. They're just ferocious. Um, and so when I did make it to Ushuaia and then back up to Santiago to catch towards to, to get the cargo ship just that journey on the ferry was such a luxury just to be able to sit on a boat and watch the scenery go by and eat lots it was it was really, it was really really good tell us um i'm just looking uh just looking here 
just at the map still. That sort of Peru Chile trench just across from Santiago, they're seven and a half thousand meters below sea level. That's Jeez. what's Mariana is at thirteen thousand, I think. Anyway, at, by the by, but what was your what was your journey home? Was that did you go through the Panamanian Canal and then yeah. up? Or, yeah, that would have been amazing. That was amazing. So we came, we I caught the ferry in Rondier to Santiago and then came up the Pacific coast heading north, obviously, and then through the Panama Canal. And that was just so amazing because I remember I was sitting on deck of this cargo ship reading about the Panama Canal as we kind of approached it. And I mean, I had no idea before I, I did that journey how important that canal was in terms of geopolitics. It just changed changed the world it literally changed the world um and also it was fascinating from the point of view of of the workers and the, um, malaria which as you can imagine was a massive challenge like thousands of people died constructing this canal and at the time they thought malaria was spread by dirt and lack of hygiene and there was one doctor who thought it was spread by mosquitoes and he was laughed out of court, but he kept coming back and saying, no, no, I'm sure, I'm sure, let's do an experiment. And eventually they let him drain one of the swamps and then the malaria incidences plummeted. And that's how he was able to establish the causation between malaria um, and, and mosquitoes. So at that point, the, the conditions for the workers improved quite considerably because they were able to control the mosquito numbers. But I mean, those kinds of stories were just fascinating to read as we headed towards the canal. And, and just the, the engineering feat is, is just incredible. I mean, some of the banks are huge and to keep those banks stable. Um, and, and the width now, of course, has been, has been widened. So the boat I was on, the ship I was on was immense and went through the bigger channel. And it was one of those kind of supersized cargo ships. So the whole thing was just mind-blowingly interesting. And then back across the Atlantic. Um, Which, I mean, in itself would have been gorgeous. But I think these sort of, you know, trans-oceanic canals, I guess, I don't know exactly what they're called, but they were sort of sprung onto our news with the Suez. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what? The ever given or the evergreen, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, that's yeah, stuck across it. I mean, I've been fascinated by both canals my entire life, but we're just—I've I've still got maps up here, and I'm just sort of reliving my childhood addiction of maps. But um, <laughs> just the, the ability to to go through and not have to go round Africa or go round South yeah. America, because I believe that. I can never remember what that bit's called. It's named after one of the guys that was in Antarctica for the first time. Is it Blake? I can't remember that the the gap between Argentina and Antarctica is supposed to be one of the roughest seas on the planet. So avoiding the fact you're having to go around half the planet, you're also having to do a, a crazy sea. How how long did that journey from going into the Panamanian Canal to coming out it take? Is it like a day? Is it a few hours? I have no idea. Um, it was most the best part of a day. Um, you, you end up queuing at the mouth for quite some time because there's always a, a, a you know a queue of ships waiting to go through. But once you actually start going through, as I remember, it was about three quarters of, the, of a day, maybe a whole day, because we, we started very early. It's one of the few times I've got up very, very early, not a morning person, but I think I was on deck at five to see to see the whole thing. And just extraordinarily skillful how they get these boats through this actually quite narrow space, relatively speaking. 
yeah, <laughs> and then random things like looking over the side at one point and seeing a massive crocodile just sunning itself on the on the bank <laughs> as the ship went past. And yeah, no, it was so super interesting. Amazing. And and how long was the journey across the Atlantic? Um, yeah, I can't remember. Well, on the way out, uh, I picked up the cargo ship in Brittany and went to Colombia from there, and it was about 11 days, so it would have been similar going back. It actually took me a month to get back on the cargo ship. I was on it for, thir for 30 days. Right. Wow. And, and and that experience itself, you know, having followed this Thorpe Ederson and, and also I watch a YouTube channel, I don't know if you're aware of them, called Yes Theory, um, they've done yeah. that, you know, I think if you, I don't know if you watch YouTube much, Kate, but I think you would love Yes Theory. That their whole mantra is saying yes. You know that that's the the mantra, and and I've probably taken quite a lot from it. In fairness, but they they found yourself in phenomenal things. I mean, they're just back from Beirut. You know, post explosion Beirut, not not um, malicious explosion. The the fertilizer uh, thing in Beirut from a couple of years ago, and looking at how that's impacted, and then they were out and. Um, I believe it was Laos um, or Lao, depending how you picking up a honey, a hallucinogenic honey. Um, they've just done everything. But the reason I'm saying this is they've done that sort of cargo ship deal. And yeah, very interesting to see. Uh, did you did you get the chance to to get to know people that worked there, worked on the cargo ship and, and sort of see what was happening? Or was that kind of, I guess, hidden away? Yeah, I mean, there's not that big a crew. The crew in total would be about 30. And on the way out, all the senior crew were French. And on the way back, all the senior crew were from Ukraine, actually. Um, so that became very interesting in, in retrospect. And then in both cases, the, the junior crew were from the Philippines. And it turns out that cargo ships are one of the biggest employers in the Philippines. There's not that many job opportunities there. Um, and those people are on the ships for up to a year away from their families, very little Wi-Fi. Um, so very, very hard working conditions for them. The senior crew tend to be there for slightly less time. They have slightly shorter shifts. I mean, only slightly. They can still be on six to eight months at, at a time. Um, so it was very segregated in that respect. And the, the passengers of which there were three on the way out and two on the way back me and a German guy who didn't speak any English uh, but we were required to eat at the officers table so I mean it's not called the merchant navy for nothing right it's quite hierarchical um, and so that was really interesting so I did spend time with, with the Ukrainian staff and became uh, really friendly with the with the first mate in particular the chief engineer and he showed me how the bridge worked and showed me all the instruments and it was really really interesting to talk to so I got to know him quite well there's not a lot to do on a cargo ship <laughs> which is perfect if you've just come off a big trip and you've got 10,000 photographs to go through right and and a lot of sleeping to do but um it's yeah it's definitely not a cruise it's you need you need to be very independent but nevertheless I was able to spend some time with some of the crew and get to know something of their life and their stories and very poignant and completely agree sorry go on no on you go Kate on you go yeah I mean I remember that we had two captains the first captain on the way back was not a fan of, of passengers and particularly not female passengers so that was quite awkward at times um, but the second captain that came on uh, was from Odessa 
and in Ukraine, and I remember him telling me about the Odessa Opera House and what a beautiful city it was, and what an amazing sort of cultural hub. And and then you know you you read about what's been happening there, and it's just just heartbreaking to think of all of those well all of the all of those people who have these stories, and families disrupted, and just this ridiculous vandalism, um, as it appears from our perspective anyway. Well, you know more about that story than I do, but. I've been very kind of especially distressed by the whole Ukrainian situation, having spent time with Ukrainian people and heard a bit about their lives. As as part of my Nuffield, which you might not know about, Kate, but um, when I was actually in the car built, I uh, basically got all the Nuffield stuff finalised, which is basically a travel scholarship. That, that's the reason I'm going to Brazil. It's the reason I'm going to a few places. Mm. I'm looking at agricultural education and I think I think I'm going to try and go to Odessa because they have a fantastic agricultural university and if I can get there it could be dangerous but I would be very interested to do it um you you mentioned about like um it not being a cruise I think that's probably definitely the case but one thing about these massive massive cargo ships that baffles me is you know you've got the idea of the the ship from you know like i don't know i don't know when we we sort of see like the tall ship idea and this you know big steering wheel the size of an elephant and it's turning a ship (laughs) maybe only six times the size of the wheel you know and then you look at these cargo ships and it's i don't know how many million tons probably but the wheels are the size of a laptop I mean, what is the engineering? I mean, as, some, as someone that, you know, you've built a bike, Kate, quite phenomenally, I could barely build a bird box, but the fact that they're able to make this massive, massive thing that's the size of some islands turn from this is just phenomenal to me. Mind-blowing, to be honest. Uh, on the um, way out, we were shown around the, the, well, the engine room isn't quite the right word because it was more like an engine hall, if you, can, if you see what I mean, but... <laughs> That just anything that you might recognize as a bit of an engine from a car or a four by four truck, they were there, but multiplied by a hundred, like they would be just, I mean, it was just immense, just the, the technology that was driving this thing. And then, and then of course, a lot of it's uh, computer run now. So there's these kind of huge sort of dashboards in the bridge with all, all this sort of technology being controlled by there. Um, and then there is a, obviously an autopilot type equivalent function where the ship is just trundling along um, a lot of a lot of the time it's going in a straight line in in relatively empty waters so um that sometimes it's quite hands-off actually the way they're they're controlled although there always has to be somebody on the bridge looking out i mean one of the things that i was really perplexed by was that they get lots of whale strikes and you kind of think well how can the whale not see the cargo ship and is is the whale sonar being interfered with by the noise of the engine? And is there some kind of distraction going on there? So I've become quite interested in this research as to how you reduce whale and other kind of mammal strikes at sea. It just seems extraordinary yeah. to me that a whale wouldn't divert out of the way of a cargo ship. Because, I mean, they're going, at, I don't know, maybe 15 knots, but that's you would imagine a whale could easily get out of the way at that sort of speed. I wonder if, you know, I guess forgetting synthetic world, naturally there's not many things 
that would bother a whale, <laughs> you know, and have they just, have they sort of become used to that? Well, if I bump off this other massive fish, I'm probably going to be fine. But I don't know, that seems like a really daft answer, but it's the only yeah, thing no, that springs to you. mind, yeah. you know? It's um, just like, oh, I don't need to move for anything else. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, I need to move for this it sounds almost then. pretty stupid now I've said it out loud, but I can't. No, it doesn't. No, I mean, <laughs> for the majority of the whale's evolution, it was the biggest thing in the sea, right? So, yeah, it hasn't evolved to, to dodge bigger things. Maybe I think I think that doesn't sound stupid at all. Well, Kate, you, you mentioned earlier you were five foot one or five foot two. Ed has just, um, <laughs> well, while you were talking under his breath, said to me. Uh, the only reason that I know about um, not worrying about anything bumping off maybe because you know it's the big style on the sea is because I can relate uh, so, <laughs> because I am not five foot one, five foot two, and I'm also not a, a, I guess a cyclist's build, shall we say? <laughs> <laughs> but um, you, you mentioned not one made of bamboo anyway. <laughs> it's a very sturdy uh, material. Kate, you've obviously finished that trip, as you call it, um, and you've taken up uh, is it authoring? That can't be how you say it. No. Writing, being an author. Uh, you have a book. Um, can you tell us about your book? If writing a book's an interesting thing. I've always sort of thought, you know, I, I, not yet, but I think it'd be really cool to write a book about something, yeah. you know? And then you actually think about you know, I'd sort of write 500 words and I'd be, class, this looks good. Maybe read a book first. Yeah, <laughs> 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 fair. I'll, I'll take that on board, actually. Take that on board. Kind of backs up the point I was going to say. I'd maybe write 500 words and think, this is really cool. Oh, I need about another 150 pages. Yeah. So, yeah, what, what's writing a book like? And what's, what's your book about also? Actually, probably a very important task. So the book's called The Life Cycle. 8,000 miles in the Andes by Bamboo Bike. And um, it's basically the story of the journey, but also why biodiversity is so important. And uh, by the way, it turns out it is really, really important. And we literally can't live without this. I mean, biodiversity gives us ecosystems and ecosystems give us stuff like soil fertility and pollination and fresh air and fresh water and things we literally can't live without. So so it's about why biodiversity is so important and then what's happening to it and, and what what can be done and what needs to be done so so it turned out to be this monster story as i've already alluded to that was partly the story of the ride and that was just fantastic and six countries all this diversity of landscape and scenery and then all these amazing people i met and then the story of biodiversity and why it's so important and then this other story that i kept colliding with this story of extractivist industries and how they're driving a lot of our problems and how that links to the way we live our life and the way we think about quality of life becomes a big question. Like if we think it's all about stuff and money, then we're feeding into the system that's causing the damage. Whereas if you're on a bike for a long time, you start to realize that you don't need that much stuff to be happy. And um, and you take such joy in the basics that you don't need more than that to, to really feel, wow, this is amazing. Someone's just given me a coffee. This is the best thing ever. You know? So yeah, it turned into this, this kind of monster story that was both very celebratory and very joyful, but also had some dark components to it. And it took me five years to write it. So I was cycling for 13 months, um, most of which was just fabulous. And writing the book for five years, most of which was really, really hard. And definitely yeah. harder than, than riding your bike the length of the Andes. 
Um, so that was quite um, unexpected, I guess, and um, a little bit surprising that writing the book was harder than doing the writing. But I did finally finish it, and it has a publisher, Icon Books, have published it, and it's doing quite well at the minute. It's I've been out and about with it, giving lots of talks and um, going to mountain festivals and bike festivals and book festivals and all sorts of festivals. So this is the fun bit, being back on the road uh, with Woody the Bamboo Bike. He usually comes and uh, giving talks about these issues that, that I care about. So that is the, the good bit. But I don't recommend writing a book, no. As Ed says, maybe read one first and see. see read my one. <laughs> yeah, read your one. Exactly. What a place to start. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, we've, quite we've long, just, it's quite we've, long. We've been looking it up there on like Audible and stuff. Tier five yeah. star rating. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. I, I see you actually narrated it yourself as well. Oh my goodness, that was an epic. It took five days to narrate that thing. Yeah. And 15 hours. You're in this little kind of soundproof cupboard for five days cursing yourself for your long sentences and your unpronounceable words and then there was this ridiculous challenge which is that my stomach kept grumbling and it didn't matter what I ate or didn't eat my stomach kept grumbling and the mic was sensitive enough to pick it up so actually um, if you ever listen to the audible book you have to visualize that for most of it I was sat there with three cushions over my stomach while I narrated the story to try to to, to block the stomach noises from reaching the microphone. So. Well, Ed's about to. Just, Ed's just bought it, so he's about yeah. to. Well, just, I just watched them buy it. Genuinely, you never get that image I, out. Uh, I use Audible and had a few credits because um, I'm a, a big fan of audiobooks. To be honest, because I don't really have time to just sit and read, and I have a lot of time working just on my own, and can just plug the earphones in and. Yeah, you can learn a lot. It's usually about rugby, so it's going to be very different <laughs> for me. I'm actually going to open up my horizons a little bit more. Went <laughs> to Argentina. They're pretty good, are they not? Yeah, and Chile, actually. Chile? Let's not talk about rugby. Let's not get into Yeah, we've done so well. I know. We've done so well. <laughs> um, South American rugby is really cool right now. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that, though. So, oh, yeah. yeah. No, I'm going to go and Google that now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Life cycle 8,000 miles in the Andes by Bamboo Bike. So, yeah, if you're listening, go check that out. Um, by Bill yeah. Rose's sister. <laughs> yeah, there we are. Sorry, yes, I've, I've mixed a bit up. Um, but, yeah, uh, go check that out. I We actually seem to have had a bit of confusion whether I've, you know, there's been an issue with my post box or whatnot. It has been sent to me, and I will actually read it. It'll probably take me, it'll genuinely probably take me a year. I'm such a painfully slow reader, you know, like, so like if Yasmin, my partner, like shows me like a, like a, 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 a post on Facebook uh, or something, yeah, yeah, yeah. she'll be like this, and I'll be like, <laughs> I'm like, 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 you read it, you read it. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm so slow, but uh, looks like a fantastic read. But Kate, you, Kate, I think you'll agree. Ed. I mean, you're someone we could sit and talk to for like four hours, I'm sure. But totally. I think we've covered some pretty amazing stuff. And first off, very much thank you for your time. Um, I'm sure you're a very busy lady, uh, but appreciate you coming on, having a chat uh, when, when you get a chance. Um, and yeah, among amongst those sort of book signings, what do you call them, sort of book you know, this is what's coming up. Uh, so appreciate that very much. Appreciate that. And yeah, I'm sure I'm sure there's some big adventures coming as well, which which we look forward to following. But go and check check out Kate's website. It's Outdoor Philosophy. Is that right? Yeah. Kate, yeah. yeah. Um, 
check out the book The Life Cycle, uh, uh, 8,000 Miles of the Andes by Bamboo Bike as well. Check that out. Uh, but Kate, before we let you go, I don't know if you're a podcast listener, but there's a podcast called The Diary of a CEO. Seems to be in the top five or ten in the world these days. Um, if you've seen, I'm going to guess... Kate, it's actually not strictly up your street that that podcast itself. Um, it's probably based on capitalism, to be honest. It's pretty yeah. much what its theme yeah. is. Um, but Stephen Bartlett, who is one of the dragons in Dragon's Den, mm-hmm. he's about my age and he's worth about four hundred million, and yeah. he started with nothing. So he's like a one of those people. Uh, interesting guy, a bit mental, but interesting guy. But anyway, his podcast, and I genuinely didn't know this, um, does this thing where. Basically, the last guest asks a question for the new guest, and we've completely stolen it, to be quite honest. So, Stephen, if you're listening, I'm not sorry at all. Uh, but the, <laughs> the question from, when I mentioned him earlier, Chris Jenks, who is the, the guy who's worked alongside Daniel Radcliffe, Gillian Anderson, some really big names in there, uh, only at 27, asked a question that I think... Kate's answer could genuinely change the world. I think I know exactly yeah. where Kate's going with this. So the question was, and, and while you're waiting a wee second to think about it, Kate, I'll let Ed answer it. Uh, if you had unlimited time and resource, what would you create? Ed, go on, give us it oh, first. All right, thanks for throwing on. that straight on yeah. at me. <laughs> unlimited time and resources. Unlimited time is an unfathomable... It's um, impossible, isn't it? You cannot fathom unlimited time. No. Like, what would you need to create in unlimited time? Something to make time limit. So yeah, then, because what is the point in unlimited time? Well, <laughs> <laughs> <This, this, this. laughs> oh, you completely ruined that question. <laughs> um, I'm maybe I'm maybe getting by the point of it. Um, but you can make what you want. Unlimited you resources. He's making a bigger parlor for more flake fee. That's what he's doing. <laughs> Um, well, well, if I had un- unlimited time and unlimited resources, I mean, I think I think the big challenge is how we how every human on the planet can have a really good life in a way that's compatible with the climate not breaking down and with ecological systems flourishing rather than degrading. And, and incidentally, I think farming is a big part of the problem and the solution that farming can show so, and is showing such leadership in that regard. But yeah, that's what I would spend my time on. Like, how how do we reconfigure what we mean by quality of life so that every human on the planet can have it without destroying the environment that we all absolutely depending on? And not only without destroying it, but so that other species and, and wild ecosystems can also flourish alongside us. So that that would be that would be my challenge. And and hopefully we can crack that one without unlimited time because frankly we don't have unlimited time right but we that is our challenge that that we need to crack and i believe we can i did come out of this trip deeply shocked by some of the things i'd witnessed but also really optimistic about human creativity and brilliance and compassion and just genius like if we really put our minds to this we like to think we're the most creative intelligent species on the planet surely we can figure out how to keep the planet inhabitable and all of us have a good time in the process that's what that's what i'd be spending my time on yeah kate would change the world if you had that you can just tell can't you You can just tell so given that was a question passed on from our last guest kate that begs the obvious question of 
just quickly, I will give you a little bit of a idea as to who. So, yes, that is the interesting one. What would your question be for a man with nine world records, one of which is the first person ever to go to every country, not once, but twice? That's the next guest on the R2 cast. I've got a feeling that'll be one that'll be up your street to listen to, actually. Um, wow. What would your question to that person be? He's currently in Gabon, and he'll be flying back to Norway about five minutes before we film. He literally says he'll get the house like half past and we're filming on the hour. And I'm like, do you not want to go sleep? And he's like, nah, nah, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, what would your question to Gunnar Garforce be? <clears throat> Whoa, I have about a million questions. Um, okay, let me think. I think my question would be, of all the, all the countries he's been to, not once but twice, what did he learn that was the most impactful in terms of the current ecological and climate crisis? Like what has he learned from these travels that could really help us change the dial and figure out how we can live sustainably and well on our, on our single planet? And how does he use his own voice and his own incredible adventure to help further that cause? There you go, that's two questions. I type as quick as that. I'd not be able to write a book. Um, <laughs> yeah, what did he what did he learn that would most help us move forward on the ecological and climate crisis and the human quality of life crisis? And how does he use his adventure? How can he use his adventure for good in the world? Yeah. Now that's a question. Yeah. Jeez, that's kind of like I'm thinking for it. Don't ask me that. The whole country you've been to twice. Right, Scotland. So, too. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I genuinely quite, a, I mean, it probably will be quite up your street, that story, Kate. I mean, yeah. we, we said before, you know, both of us quite like to sort of go into this quite, quite natural and just ask some questions. But I genuinely am yeah. going to line a few up because a few countries on there, like yeah. North Korea, What's happened there? Yeah. Eritrea. That I'm pretty sure Eritrea is worse than North Korea, from what I understand. Um, just please, like, yeah. what, what are they like? Like, genuinely, what are they like? And um, yeah, but it's probably countries that you you wouldn't even think of, or you've never even heard of, that are probably the worst. I think Congo's supposed to be really bad, and he was he was there last week. Um, yeah, because we I, when I was in Rwanda, like. Congo and nope, not true. Congo hate Rwanda. I mean, like hate, hate, hate. Rwanda, are like why? <laughs> they kind of want to be friends. Like generally, they kind of like well. Basically, Rwanda's went from in 1994, 97 days, one fourteen percent of their population killed by themselves. You know, like that overnight, and then kind of in a similar sort of way to what's happening at the minute. Um, with Israel, I mean, Israel are in no way at all innocent, but have now had such an atrocity committed to them. They're almost the one not in the right, but that are, are sort of, you know, that was what happened with the Tutsis and the Hutus. Uh, and then in the last 29 years, Rwanda's arguably the most progressive African, potentially global country on the planet. You know, and I think Congo's quite jealous of that. And there's really like quite a, a trouble there. And they're just 
kind of making bad neighbours out to everyone to try and sort of protect their own. It's a phenomenal Jeez. resource, just, I mean, resource-rich country. <clears throat> also, probably about two times the size of Europe, massive place, Congo. Like, one of the biggest, I think uh, it's the biggest Congo, country. I mean, Rwanda. No, 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 Rwanda's tiny. Um, mm. I think it's the biggest country in Africa, from memory. That or Sudan. Anyway, doesn't matter, yeah. huge place. Uh, and yeah, just, just don't go on. But I don't know why I started telling that story. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> very much looking forward to Gunnar coming on. Um, the next episode on the R2 cast in general is Amy Stoner talking about food security with her Nuffield scholarship, which is quite interesting because, first off, it's interesting. <laughs> and secondly, um, my master's in food security. So it'd be quite cool to see the sort of difference there. I only completed that four years ago. Um, but it was only in its third year of that course then. So it's very much a new thing. Ukraine's sort of, I guess, thrown it into the spotlight. You know, food security used to probably mean putting a padlock on the fridge, and now it's actually quite a common term that we use for, for a lot of stuff. So, um, yeah, an interesting one there. And also uh, the next episode, the all-in, as we said, is Gunnar Garforce. We have just also, that'll be 167, so there'll be a few more before this, but we've just, um, haven't got the exact one yet, but have spoken to for the 180th episode, because I think I'm hilarious, 180 for darts, uh, got an ex-fourth in the world darts player and the current 34th in the world darts player. So we're going to bring both of them on at different times. We're pretty cool. Mm. Pretend to know something about darts. That'd be quite interesting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny something about bamboo bikes. So uh, yeah, a lot of good stuff going on. I genuinely I posted it on Facebook last week. I genuinely think it's actually insane the stuff that we're managing. Yeah. Just meeting so many cool folk. Like you built a bike and cycled South America. Like how? How? <laughs> so cool. And the way I found this lady was because I was driving to a war-torn country. Like life's different yeah. at the minute, and I'm absolutely loving it. So it's been an absolute pleasure, Kate. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you both very much. And and for the record, I'm a real fan of Pickups for Peace. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant project. And and I'm definitely going to listen to more of your podcasts. So it, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, pleasure's been all ours. And yeah, yeah, matter that point in P4P. Look it up, support if you can, whether that's financially or or philanthrop- philanthropically by getting involved yourself. Um, yeah, try and do that if anyone can listen. And for those of you listening, thank you as always. For listening, I can't remember exactly when this has been released, but it must be getting close to the last one of the year. I think it must be the third last one of the year, because I think there's supposed to be 93 episodes in 2023. There was only 73 episodes in the first 24 months of the podcast, so kind of mental at this point, in fairness. I think, yeah, we'll see. Uh, Next year, we should see uh, 98, I believe. But I've got a feeling at some point through next year, we're going to jump up. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm probably hitting 100. Rogan, we're coming for you. Um, It's been a pleasure. (laughs) Thank you all. And we'll see you for the next episode with Amy Stoner. See you then. See you.